This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. If you're going to stay in with us, let me invite you to take your Bible and open to Genesis chapter 33. Genesis 33. If you uh, don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles on the side that are provided for you, and we'd love for you to grab one of those and follow along. You'll find Genesis 33 on page 26 in those Bibles. I'd love for you to grab one and follow along with me. I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and then we'll pray together. This is God's word. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing That is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for this gathered group of believers that have come now to hear from you. And Lord, that is our deepest prayers that we would hear from you, that your spirit would speak to your people through your word. Lord, we pray that you would build us up into Christ, that we would see more and more vividly what our union with Jesus means, what your grace truly is, and what it has accomplished and is accomplishing and will accomplish in our lives. Lord, we pray for reconciliation among family members and church members, between husbands and wives, children and parents, that Christ would be honored. Lord, we pray the gospel would be made clear and that you would call people to yourself as he is lifted up. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's so good to be back with you and to uh, pick up our study in the book of Genesis. And uh, as you know, from about chapter 25 of Genesis, we've really been focused on the life of Jacob. And 
From the first time his name has been mentioned, he has been a character who has struggled. Uh, from the womb, he struggled with his brother Esau, and he came out of the womb grabbing onto his heel. He was named as a heel grabber, a deceiver. Uh, the Lord told Rachel, if you remember, or Rebecca rather, that they were, there were two nations that were in her womb, and they would be divided, and that the older, Esau, would serve the younger, who was Jacob. And the promise of Abraham would therefore go through Jacob. Paul tells us in Romans 9, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had not done anything either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And so God's purposes were clear. And yet Jacob and Esau both made choices in their lives and the mystery of God's providence lined up, coincided with God's will. So instead of trusting God that he would bring about his purposes by his means, Jacob tricks Esau into trading his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew. Then he deceives his father Isaac by dressing up like Esau and bold-faced lying to him, telling him that he is in fact Esau, cooking a meal for him, that he would steal the blessing of the firstborn, sealing it with this deceptive kiss, if you remember. That deception worked, and, and Jacob received the promised blessing, and Esau was left with nothing but bitter anger toward his brother. So, so angry was he that he was plotting to kill him. And that's why Rebekah sent him away to her brother Laban. So the relationship between Jacob and Esau kind of goes silent at that point in Genesis. Uh, Jacob goes to Laban, and then, of course, we know he's been deceived himself into serving for some 20 years for his wives and livestock. And, but God, while he's there, shows himself to be faithful to him throughout a period of what we could only label as slavery and wandering. And then just like the people of Israel who were enslaved by the Egyptians, God pro prospered Jacob and eventually led him out of slavery into the, into the wilderness on his way to the promised land of Canaan. He was pursued by Laban, just like Pharaoh pursued the people of Israel, but God intervened. We saw that in chapter 31 through a dream, and he rescued him. But on his journey, this prospect of meeting his brother still loomed over his head. Imagine the guilt that weighed on him for all the things that he had done. We know that Jacob sent messengers to Esau, letting him know a summary of what had happened over the past 30 years or 20 years in his desire to, to, to find favor in his sight. And when those messengers returned, if you remember, they, all they said was, we met Esau, he's coming to you with 400 men. That's it. And so that's a very ominous message. And Jacob is afraid. He begins to divide up his people in possessions into two camps. He sends envoys to Esau with an extravagant amount of, of, of gifts and in flocks and servants and all these things that would, in hopes that it would appease him. And finally, then he sends his wives and his own children over the Jabbok at night and was left alone. And if you remember what happened next, it was the turning point in Jacob's life. It was there a man found him and wrestled him. And that wasn't Esau, who we might expect. But this man touched his hip so that he would forever walk with a limp. The man blessed him and gave him a new name, Israel, meaning something like strives with God. Jacob concluded that he had wrestled with God himself 
and survived. Whether it was God or an angel that represented God, Jacob was now new. He was Israel. And that brings us to our passage this morning in Genesis 33, sandwiched between the news of Esau's coming and their actual meeting that we'll see today was Jacob's meeting with God and the life change that happened there. And that's really the theme of this chapter, transformation. How is Jacob now different after meeting with God? And I just want to see how much God has changed this deceiver into a new man. And I pray that it would encourage us and God's own work in our lives. So here's the main point of the sermon in one sentence. True knowledge of the living God brings about lasting transformation in his people. True knowledge, true knowledge of the living God brings about lasting transformation in his people. Knowing the God of grace makes us gracious. Knowing the God of forgiveness makes us a people who seek out forgiveness. Being reconciled with God brings about reconciliation and peace with others. We're going to see that truth and that flow of thought throughout our passage. There are three scenes in chapter 33, and we're just going to use those as our outline uh, this morning. And each one, I think, we'll see this transformed Jacob and how he is new. And my prayer is that we would be drawn into God's own transforming work of grace in our lives as we study this together. So let's look at this first scene, and we'll just call it a peaceful reunion. And it's in the first 11 verses that I read. We're going to spend the majority of our time here this morning because this is where we find the meat of the reunion between these two brothers. And so I want you to to visualize the sun coming up, Jacob limping. Okay, it's that morning, trying to maybe catch up with his family that have gone on ahead of him, his clan who have gone out. And he's reflecting on this interaction with God, this wrestling match with him. And so we pick it up there in verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. And so this is the the peak of the suspense, right? We've we've known he's coming. Here he is. Uh, What have these last 20 years been like for Esau? Jacob does not know. We don't know as, as the reader. Has he been nursing this grudge, this murderous grudge, this whole time, and now he's ready for full revenge? It sounds like he's come out with a militia to attack. And you know from my summary of the scene, a peaceful reunion, um, that this is going to go well. Okay, this is a good thing. But I want us to understand the reason that it does go well. And I think you'll find that in verse 10. It's the key verse, I think, for the whole section. Look there again. Jacob, and this is after they're, they're interacting and he's trying to, to give him these gifts. And Jacob says, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, favor, another word for kind of grace, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. How is seeing Esau's face like seeing the face of God for Jacob? I think if we understand that, it helps us to see how the passage fits together. I don't think it's a good comparison to say, well, Esau is like God. Of course, I see your face, it's like God. I don't think that's, if that's what Jacob means, I don't think that's a good comparison. But we know that this is sort of the crux of what Moses is telling us because verses 9 to 11 crescendo here. 
They make what we've referred to, seen often, as a chiasm, a big greater than sign, where at the top and bottom of that greater than sign, we see these brothers talking about having plenty, all that they need in verses 9 and 11. And then at the next level of that sign, we see them referring to grace and favor in verses 10 and 11. Then at the next layer, they're dealing with accepting presents and gifts in verses 10 and 11. And then in the middle is this language about seeing your face is like seeing the face of God and being accepted. And we've seen that language before. Back in chapter 32, I know it's been a few weeks, but look back there with me at chapter 32. Look at verse 20. There, Jacob is preparing to meet with Esau. So he's, he's, he hears he's coming, he's afraid, he's getting things together, sending these gifts to him. Look at what he says in verse 20. And you shall say, he's talking to his servants, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. It's very similar language. This word for present uh, is used, the same word is used in Leviticus to describe animal sacrifices that are made to God to appease or propitiate, make atonement for his wrath against sin so that the people would be accepted and not rejected and not restore, destroyed. So, so look again down at chapter 32, verse 30. Look at verse 30, chapter 32. So Jacob called the name of this place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Very similar language. So, so Jacob saw God's face and was delivered. And he uses the same language in seeing Esau's face in verse 10, seeing his face and him accepting his presence and being accepted. So I think it's clicking for Jacob here that if he's being accepted by God through sacrifice and repentance, he should seek to be accepted by his brother, whom he has also offended in repentance and faith. So the common denominator in these two situations is Jacob, and he is the offending party. He's the one who has messed it up with God and with Esau. He's offended God by his sin against his father and his brother. And when God asked him his name back in 32, when they were wrestling, what is your name? He didn't shy away from saying, Jacob, deceiver, heel grabber. And then God transformed him. He made him into Israel. He humbled him by touching his hip, showing his need for him. But he also accepted him. He did not destroy him. Of course, we know he could have. He just touched his hip and he was crippled for life. But he accepted him. And now Jacob is a different man. And when he sees Esau, whom he has also greatly offended, it is like seeing the face of God. And so he sends presence and seeks acceptance by humbling himself and repenting. And we're going to note some of the marks of that humbling and repentance as we go through this text and it just shows us the transformation that's taken place in Jacob's life. Let's look again at verse 1. Jacob sees Esau coming, and, and then in the second half of the verse, we read, So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, and Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. You might say this doesn't sound any different than what we saw in chapter 32. 
He divided people up and he, 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 he put them out before himself, um, divided them into two camps. He was in self-preservation mode. And, and here he seems to put the, the people that he loves most in the rear of the line. Did you notice that? I don't know. Imagine you're at the front of the line. You're one of his children, one of his children that are not listed here. And you're like, why am I going first? Why do I have to meet this guy first? But there, so there seems to be still some perhaps favoritism at work in, in, his, in the way that he's thinking. And if you remember back in chapter 32, after he sent everyone else and divided them out, out, he himself was the last one, as if he was holding out hope that if it gets really bad, I might be able to get away and escape. That's not what happens here. Not this time. Now look at verse 3. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So now Jacob steps out in front of his family, before his people, to face whatever may come from his hunter, angry, older brother and his militia. He stands in the gap for them. I think this is a mark of the transformed Jacob, the new Israel. He's, he's acting really like Jesus here, putting those sinful, fickle disciples behind him and facing the soldiers and the charges and the cross that they might be kept safe, that he would go in their place and sacrifice himself for them. Jacob stands in front as a changed man. Notice what he does. He bows himself to the ground seven times. That's actually a very common custom for a servant to show respect to a superior. Included in the blessing that Isaac gave him was the, were these words, you will lord over your brothers and your mother's sons will bow down to you. Chapter 27, verse 29. Do you see how Jacob is laying down his rights, his rightful place. He doesn't count being the son of promise, something to be grasped, but humbles himself, taking the form of a servant. He's not the same person. How could he be after meeting with the living God? Isn't this the biblical model for all of us? We look to the Ten Commandments, the first four command our love and worship of the one true God. The second six command our love for one another. That's the order. We're loved by God and therefore we love and worship him. We're changed by him, therefore we love and care for our brothers. Jesus summarizes this in the New Testament, doesn't he? Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This connection is inseparable. Love God. Love your neighbor. We love because we've been loved. We love the way that we've been loved. That's what Jacob is doing. He's essentially repenting tangibly before his brother. He's acknowledging his sin and deception by bowing. And throughout the passage, did you notice he refers to Esau he preferred to himself as Esau's servant and Esau as his Lord, even though Esau simply refers to him as his brother. And then look at verse 11 again. Please accept my blessing. 
that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged them and he took it. Don't you know how much of a loaded word that word is? Blessing. And he is now saying, I want you to have it back. I took it from you. Take it back. Have it back. This is the blessing that I stole from you. The blessing that I don't deserve. Jacob isn't trying to reverse God's providence here. He's still the elect son. The promise is going to go through him. But he is seeking to make restitution for his sin. He is repenting. He is a changed man. If you've never heard Dale Satriano's testimony, you should go talk to him and talk to him about what it meant for him after he came to know Christ, making restitution for some things in his past. It's a great encouragement. He's not here, so I can mention him. Now, why is he doing this? I think verse 11 tells us, because God has dealt graciously with me. That's why. That's the motivation. That's the root. Because I have enough. When Esau asked about his family, look at how he, remember how he replied there in verse 5? All these mentions of, of grace, just, just let them wash over you. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Jacob has been transformed by God's grace. And the grace that he has received cannot be contained to himself. It flows out to others. This is the essence of the covenant God makes with Abraham. The promise that he said, to Abraham, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And in chapter 32, we saw Jacob pressing this man. He would not, literally would not let him go until he was blessed by him. And he was blessed. And now he is pressing Esau and won't let him go until he can bless him. Don't you see the, the, the connection? This is what it looks like to receive grace and to give grace. Friend, what about, what about you? Do you know this God, the God of Jacob, the God of grace? Have you wrestled with the reality that this God is holy and mighty, who made the world and everything in it, including you? That he made you in his own image to glorify him, to love him, to know him? but that every person in this room has sinned like Jacob. We've all fallen short of God's purpose for us. Have you ever lied like Jacob lied? Have you ever deceived someone to get what you wanted? Have you ever trusted or failed to trust in the one who made you to take care of you and you devised a plan that you thought would be better? Have you ever chosen to serve yourself over others? We're all just like Jacob. We're guilty and deserving of God's right justice. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We, we can't make it better simply by trying harder to be good or to go to church more or to treat people better than we have in the past. All of our currency that we would use to pay back God for our sin is stained by our sin. It's no good. The only sacrifice, the only present that could purchase that kind of redemption comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the only way God's right wrath could be appeased, atoned for. Jesus is God in the flesh, the sinless one who came to earth to rescue us from our sin. His life was righteous and perfect, and then he laid it down as a sacrifice 
to propitiate, atone for our sin, to take our place, to stand out in front of us, to die and then rise from the grave. And friend, he rose from the grave three days later. And if you would turn from your sin and put your trust in him, you will be saved. You will be transformed forever. You would experience the grace that Jacob does here. And that will change every part of your life, beginning with your love for God. You will love God, the God who saved you. You will love him and want to worship him and serve him, the land that takes away the sins of the world. And then you will want to love his people. You will want to love and serve others. Would you humble yourself like like Jacob does here? Would you bow your knee to submit to your king, to your Lord? Would you be his servant? Would you follow him? Would you love and serve his people? Seek to be a blessing to others. The blessing of Abraham only comes to us through his true descendant, Jesus Christ. Friend, come to Christ. If you're a member of our church, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, I want you to just think with me about how the grace of God continues to function in your life after salvation. The transformation keeps going, doesn't it? And, and changing us more and more. Just zoom in on Jacob's statement there in verse 11 again. Because God has dealt graciously with me, I have enough. Beloved, has God dealt graciously with you? Do you have enough? If you would say yes, then how is that power, that grace functioning regularly in your life today? Think about your own marriage, if you're, if you're married. Is it functioning like this, where you're seeing your eternal security and joy and peace in Christ, and you have a very grace-based relationship, or is it more of something where you're keeping tabs on every wrong? And reminding your spouse of every wrong, everything that they do that kind of annoys you, lets you down, displeases you, and then you seek to return the favor. Wouldn't this grace make us be people that would be quick to overlook offenses, quick to serve, quick to be the initiator when reconciliation needs to happen because of the grace that we have been shown? We have to apply this to one another. If you're here and you're single, Think about the way your relationships function in the various spheres of your life, in our church. When you're really encouraged today, if someone makes one misstep, one thing that you think isn't absolutely perfect, they're canceled from your life forever. How does the grace of God change the way that you function in that atmosphere? Shouldn't we be reflecting on God's grace that would make us more gracious, more generous, with our, with, our, with our money, with our time, more eager to support one another. I wonder if you're sidestepping some reconciliation that needs to take place in your family or in your church relationships. As God, just ask God to make his grace to you, his reconciling work through Jesus so vivid that you could not rest until you've done your part to extend a hand of reconciliation to that person. Jacob doesn't plan this out. He doesn't have a great strategy for this. He doesn't know what's going to happen. We do know that he prayed. He prayed back in chapter 32. You should go read that prayer, verses 9 to 12. He prayed for deliverance. For God. And, and what is God doing but answering his prayer right before our eyes? Who expected to read verse 4 
from what we know about Esau. Who expected to read, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. That's not what I was expecting. Jacob didn't organize this, God did this. So friend, I know you probably have someone in your mind you think you don't understand, this is a bad deal, bad situation, but, but put, put your hope in God. Put your trust in God. Ask him to do the hard work of the reconciling process and you just seek to be faithful. Ask for his help and watch him work. Think about Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. May that be so with us who know we were at one time enemies with God and he has saved us and made peace through the cross. That's the first section, verses 1 to 11, this, this reunion with, with Jacob and Esau. Now let's look at the next two scenes, and we'll start with scene two, and I'll, I'll label that the peace, a peaceful parting. This is verses 12 to 17, a peaceful parting. And you might say, what do you mean by parting? We just had a reconciliation. Well, sometimes reconciliation does not result in being best friends forever and having a close, ongoing relationship. That's not going to be the case with Jacob and Esau. Uh, remember, they represent nations, uh, Israel and Edom, and those nations are going to have a strained relationship throughout the rest of the salvation history. Essentially, they represent the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. So you could say these two are literally unequally yoked. If they were to stay closely connected, we know problems would, would happen. It's very similar to Abraham and Lot, just needing to, to, to eventually separate and so Jacob is headed to the promised land and, and Esau lives in Sair, outside of the promised land. And so what we see in these verses is an attempt at a peaceful parting initiated by Jacob and it's done, I think, almost in every way, in a godly way, almost. Uh, look at verse 12. Then Esau said, let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. And so Esau clearly wants to stick together. Jacob clearly does not think that's a good idea. He is, he is through kind of this Middle Eastern hospitality, making it, making it easy to say, let's go our separate ways. He sees, I think, that Esau is still Esau. You know, Jacob's walking with a limp. Esau's still happy to run full speed. Jacob's been changed. Esau has not. And, and perhaps he foresees just a future problem that would happen if they stay together. So he politely points out, hunters and warriors, they travel a lot faster than, than flocks and families. So it's gonna be unwise to push them too hard. Some might die. That makes good sense. In fact, if he would have just kind of left it here, that might have been enough, but Jacob doesn't leave it here. Look where he, he, he continues in verse 14. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Sair. Now we don't have any indication from this passage that Jacob ever intends to go to Sair. Not in the promised land. Moses does not tell us why Jacob says this. Uh, earlier when Jacob said something similar to this or did something like this, Moses gave us an editorial comment that said something like, thus Jacob deceived his father or his brother. Here, that we don't have that comment. 
but I just can't help to see this as the old Jacob rearing its head. It seems completely disingenuous as far as I can tell. And I think the lesson for us is, is this. Jacob is still both Jacob and Israel. Even though he's been changed, declared to be a new person, a new name, the old Jacob is still hanging around. And if you're here as a born-again Christian, you understand what that means. You are at once both sinner and saint. You have not yet been perfected, not yet glorified. We still sin regularly. And therefore, we ought to be regularly repenting and regularly believing on Jesus Christ, regularly mortifying our sin, putting it to death daily. We are all in process. If you think that once you're saved, Christians don't sin, you've misunderstood the gospel. You just hang around a little while. You'll understand that's not true. The difference is that Christians are repenting sinners. We are no longer at peace with our sin because we've been made at peace with the holy God. So if you're regularly convicted of your sin and repenting of sin and being sort of aware of sin in your life. And I want you to encourage you not to think that that means you're not saved. Just the opposite. I want to encourage you to regularly look to Christ, not your own sin. Look to Jesus. The only fitness he requires is that you feel your need of him. This is a great, I think a great argument for you to become a member of a local church where you're going to be surrounded by fellow sinner saints who are all repenting, all believing, all struggling, and trying to encourage each other along this path to the celestial city. You're not meant to walk this out on your own. So friend, if you love God, if you profess to love God, how could you not love and invest in his people? Join a church. If not this one, some other church that preaches the gospel faithfully. And there you will find an assurance of salvation co-op eager to help you grow in Jesus and your love for your brothers and sisters. That's what, we, we were, that's what we're all called to. And so, so Jacob is Jacob and Israel. And here in this passage, he's still continuing to try to push off his brother's attempts to stay together. So pick it up in verse 15. So Esau said, let me leave you with some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there, Jacob? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Sire, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And so Jacob, not going to Sire, he's headed the opposite direction. And really, this just, if you're keeping tabs, this just continues the, the parallel direction of the, the connections between the Exodus and the story of Jacob and his life. Um, if you remember Israel's stop after leaving Egypt in the Exodus, their first stop was Succoth in Exodus 12, verse 37. And the mention here of booths, even though it's for animals, that should kind of jar our memory and help us to, to be reminded that, that the Israelites, as they left their homes in Egypt, lived in these booths, uh, these, these portable dwelling places. And I think Moses is intending these connections for us to see them because he's writing to these Israelites who are in the midst of wandering at the moment and wandering their way through the wilderness. Are they going to trust Moses as their leader? Are they going to trust God to come through 
And he's saying to them, look at what the Lord has already done through our fathers, through the patriarchs. We just need to trust him that he will take us there too. And so God is faithful to do that. He's faithful to Jacob and he'll be faithful to us as the, na- as, as the nation of Jacob, Moses is saying. And that takes us to the third scene, which is a peaceful arrival, verses 18 to 20. Now, incidentally, we don't hear from Esau really much anymore, except for uh, some comments about his genealogy, and he comes home for the funeral of his father, Isaac. As one author puts it here, Esau steps off the pages of salvation history. Ultimately, he does not repent. We don't see evidence of repentance. He does not speak of the grace of God. He despised his birthright, and he doesn't have a part in God's eternal kingdom. It's not a happy ending for him. Now compare that with what we read about Jacob in verse 18 and following. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padam Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the field, the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. Now imagine reading that as an Israelite wandering in the wilderness after coming out of Egypt. God did it. God did it with Jacob. He took him through exile, through slavery, through an exodus of his own, through the wilderness, out of the hands of his enemies, and brought him safely to the promised land. If you have an ESV and you're looking at, looking at that verse, you see a footnote on that word safely can also just mean peacefully. And it's the root word there, shalom. And it just harkens back to, if you remember that bargain prayer that Jacob made with God back in chapter 28 when he was at Bethel? You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. Just listen. Genesis 28, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in his way that I go and I will, and he will give me bread and, and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace Then the Lord shall be my God, and this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and all of this that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. I don't know if you remember, but reading that initially, that prayer, we we just pointed out how conditional it was on Jacob's part, but look what God did with that fickle, conditional faith that he had. He did keep him. He did protect him. He did provide for him. And we just read that he brought him in peace to the promised land. And then Jacob, like, his, like Abraham before him, purchases a piece of land, builds an altar at Shechem, where Abraham built an altar, Genesis 12. It took Abraham a few verses to build an altar. It took Jacob 14 chapters. Some of us take longer than others. But God's grace is still at work in him. And he calls the place El Elohi Israel, meaning God, the God of Israel. Not just the God of my fathers, my God, my God. He's a new man who loves his God. I just think that's a life-giving transformation that we should see and observe. There's also, if if you've been reading ahead, a very ominous note bringing up Shechem. Here, at the end of the chapter, we would have expected Jacob to build his camp in Bethel, where he made that promise and that vow, where he he originally was speaking that to God, but he stopped short about 20 miles in Shechem. 
And that's going to cost him and his family very, very dearly. There's a very tragic passage next week that we'll see how. It would be some 10 years before he would make it back to Bethel, but he does by God's grace. God always keeps his promises. That's what the people in Moses' day needed to hear, and it's what you and I need to hear as well. We need to hear it because we often doubt God's care and concern for us. We often think that we have now overstepped the boundaries of love and grace, that he is continually unhappy with us, ultimately disappointed in us. Surely we have burned the final bridge with God. There's nothing left for us. No more love, no more grace. Friend, if that's you and if deep down in your heart you would say, that's where I am, I hope this passage speaks to your soul. After 20 years of bitterness and separation, these two brothers reunite by God's grace. And Jacob says it's like seeing the face of God. I wonder if you see God's face that way, eager to accept you. I think Jesus wants us to see his face that way. Like a man who had two sons. The younger asked for his inheritance early. He journeyed far away from his father. You might say he went into exile. He squandered all that he had. He lived recklessly without a care for his father or his inheritance as a son, without a care for sullying his father's name. And he ended up wishing he could just eat like the pigs in a pig stall because at least they had a consistent meal. He had nothing. But one day he came to himself and decided to go home and apply to be one of his father's servants. He had it all planned out. He confessed all that he had done, and then he would be able to be a servant of his father, servant of his father's because he knew he'd do well there, but he no longer felt worthy to be called a son. And so he went home, and this is what Jesus tells us. And just listen to see if this sounds familiar. Luke 15, 20, and the father arose, or and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Would you believe that Jesus would look to and use and think about the posture of Esau to describe God's love for his sons and daughters that have sinned and fallen short and missed the mark and that he would stand with open arms because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and say, come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. The gospel transforms us. God's grace makes us new. Come home to that grace. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would call sinners home today, those that are wandering and that are lost in darkness. 
Lord, we pray that you would give them eyes to see and a heart to believe the gospel. Lord, change them forever. Those that are your people that have grown weary, that feel thin inside, they have nothing left to give. Lord, would you fill us up with a renewed picture of your grace for us? the fountain that never runs dry. We pray that grace would be operative in our lives, in every part of our lives, that we would know this acceptance day in and day out, and that we would live from it, not for it. We pray that you would do this work among us, that we might be faithful servants of the King. We pray this in his name. Amen.